Dr. Ethan Rousseau, what an honor and a pleasure it is to have you with us on Hemp Barons today. Well, thanks for having me. I feel so blessed. You know, I, I've moved back here to the Pacific Northwest where I raised my children. And uh, as the very renowned visionary artist and, and thought leader, really, Alex Gray says about the Emerald City, Seattle, he says, we live in the future here. Uh, and we so do. We have such a just tremendously fantastic, brilliant minds and, and advocates and such a spectrum of, of industry and, and life on earth, but particularly in cannabis and plant medicine. Uh, you know, in the Seattle Hemp Fest is going to go on its 29th annual uh, event this year, no doubt virtually. And we have you as well here in the Pacific Northwest, which it's just been so fabulous to come back after two and a half years in New York and to be back into this bubble where we live in the future and we get to share space uh, with brilliant minds like yours. You have worked and traveled around the world from the Amazon to China to Prague and, and everywhere in between. You're globally renowned, prolific pioneer of cannabinoid science and medicine uh, with expertise, of course, in botany and plant medicine in general. And your passion uh, is really psychopharmacology and you're a renowned psychopharmacology researcher as well. And in, and in the end, you're also just a medical doctor and a board certified neurologist, exactly who we need uh, in cannabis. Can you start, uh, Dr. Russo, by telling us really uh, how you got started uh, in plant medicine? And uh, I, I'd love to hear some of those stories about your trumpsing around the Amazon in Peru to start. Sure. With. Okay. Well, I, I had an interest in medicinal plants dating to my teen years. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts and there was uh, poison ivy everywhere. Um, I was really pleased uh, to learn uh, from Yule Gibbons that jewelweed, which is a member of the impatience uh, genus, uh, could uh, prevent outbreaks. And I tried it and it worked really well. Meanwhile, uh, subsequently, I went to uh, medical school and took standard conventional pharmacology. Um, Fast forward uh, to being in practice in neurology in Missoula, Montana. After about seven years, um, I had a sort of crisis of confidence in that um, I didn't think I was getting where, anywhere with a lot of my patients, basically giving increasingly toxic drugs with less and less benefit. So I really decided to take a harder look at uh, medicinal plants and how they could be incorporated into my practice. Um, basically, I pursued that for the next 13 years. Along the way, trying to do uh, research on migraine and psychoactive plants, um, I realized that the best place to do this was in the Amazon jungle. So I took some Spanish classes at night uh, for a couple of years, once a week, uh, eventually culminating to a first trip to Peru in 1994, and then a two-month-plus trip uh, to work, work with the Machiganga tribe on Parque Nacional del Manu in the Amazon in 1995. Yeah. Um, at that point, I knew that I really wanted to devote as much of my career as I could to medicinal plant research. But when I got back, being 1996 with Prop 215 in California, things were really taking off and I got embroiled in the cannabis controversy, let's call it. So I began intensive study and uh, attempts to do formal 
research uh, with federal cannabis. Uh, making a long story short, I got stonewalled for a period of years, culminating in 1999, when I got FDA approval to do a study of cannabis and migraine, but NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Abuse would not supply the material. Uh, meanwhile, I'd already published a study uh, looking at uh, cannabis and migraine in the journal Pain in 1998. That was noticed by Jeffrey Guy, the founder and chairman of GW Pharmaceuticals, the year that they began their work, uh, which eventually culminated in the two uh, cannabis-based pharmaceuticals, uh, Sativex and Epidiolex, which I worked on um, intensively uh, between 2003 and 2014 um, when I was working for GW as a senior medical advisor. Subsequently, I've been with some private companies culminating this past year in the beginning of uh, our own company, Credo Science, uh, which is devoted basically to developing mainly non-THC products uh, from cannabis and leveraging the endocannabinoid system. Um, so we're looking at medical applications definitely, but also industrial applications uh, of cannabis, as well as uh, we've recently started a formulation service using cannabis-based medicines both for the supplement industry and hopefully uh, with a couple of pharmaceutical clients um, as a method of funding the organization. A medical cannabis think and do tank for better living. The proof is out there. <laughs> yeah, you hit our taglines. Love it. Love it. I just, you know, I, I think it's so fantastic. Let's go back uh, and we're going to get to some hemp stuff here. It's hemp barons after all, but you are are so prolific and, and the message that you have, the, the knowledge, the training, uh, the presentations that you do, I want really to, for my listeners to be able to, to see and experience all of this depth and breadth of it in this, in this interview. So let's go back to that plant medicines for a second, because I, I listen to so many of your interviews. And in fact, I listen to them over and over again. And one must, I'm a law and regulatory expert. I'm not a math and science girl. So it doesn't come as easily to me. So I have to listen to your interviews over and over again and learn a little more each time. I particularly love your interviews with Shango Los, uh, who is, a, of course, a, a fellow Pacific Northwest uh, cannabis intellectual and advocate. And he, a few years ago, did an interview with you where we were talk, he was talking about plant medicine and he asked you how did the indigenous people know that these different plants had these different healing properties how were they even aware of that and you just very nonchalantly responded well you know through observation is one way and then of course the plants and were, they were guided to the plants as well particularly when they were under you know the influence of the plants and and then you went on a little bit and shango said um, excuse me, Dr. Russo, can we go back to what you just said a second ago about the plants themselves directing the humans to them or, or spirit, plant spirits directing humans to them to say, hey, this heals this and this is good for that. Can we talk about that and how you explained your answer to Shango? Uh, sure. Well, it works on a couple of levels, uh, not all of which we can understand uh, using Western conventional thought. 
let me start by mentioning uh, Professor Schultes, uh, Richard Evans Schultes, uh, who was considered at least the American father of ethnobotany and who was one of my mentors. When I met him, uh, I spent, um, let me think, it was, yeah, 1992. Um, I had an appointment with him. He was a longtime professor of botany uh, at Harvard. And I managed to snag an appointment with him in 1992. Um, and there was this constant stream of people. And I figured, oh, boy, I'm going to be lucky to get 15 minutes. But uh, when I got into his office, he told the secretary, basically, no interruptions. I always have time for someone who's going to the Amazon. So for the next six and a half hours, um, I had his undivided attention. Um, and one of the stories he told me at that time was that as a botanist and scientist, he could look at two identical plants of the same species and see nothing different about them. But the indigenous people in the Amazon would clearly see them as distinct. And it was based on chemical differences. Uh, he couldn't sense anything, smell, taste sight, but they knew the differences. And some of this could have been experiential, um, you know, that they tried this one and it was stronger than the other. But even in areas where they were exploring and they hadn't been there before, they could tell this difference. And it was borne out in the laboratory. So the first explanation is uh, they have a chemical sense that we have lost, those of us in advanced societies, so to speak. Um, the other explanation is even more cosmic because uh, it involves divination. Um, people may familiar, be familiar with ayahuasca, the vine of the soul, which basically is a psychedelic mixture of dimethyltryptamine and harmaline alkaloids by combining a couple of different plants. And basically, uh, this produces a very powerful psychedelic effect um, that's used ceremonially as a, a method of uh, divination. Keeping in mind that these people live in an area that's very harsh. If you plunked a Westerner down in the Amazon jungle, they'd be lucky to last three days um, between the bugs and knowing what to eat and uh, possibility of animals and stings and everything else. Um, but in taking this, one of the things they would do during an ayahuasca ceremony is figure out how to uh, adapt to the environment. And that would include things like, we're hungry, where is the game that we need to hunt? Or um, more particularly, um, my wife is sick, and I don't know what plant to use to treat her. Uh, and this was used a great deal. And my uh, observation was when uh, the answers came to them during the course of the intoxication, if you want to call it that, um, they almost invariably were helpful. And through repetition of this over generations, uh, they've built up a library of hundreds, hundreds of plants that are used medicinally for all kinds of conditions and usually very effective, the exception being Western viruses, which uh, run rampant in these populations. I think that 
their resistance didn't come over the Bering Land Strait <laughs> thousands of years ago. Um, but it, it was really remarkable. Um, and I, I can tell one story in particular. There was a plant I knew I wanted. It had been reported from Ecuador as a, a remedy for migraine. Um, the plant was Codenanthopsis dissimulata. It's a member of the African violet family. But we hadn't seen it. We'd been out on the trail for weeks and weeks. I was up ahead on the trail and heard uh, Mateo, our guide, uh, calling me. And he said, we found it, uh, your plant. And I went back and a tree had fallen. Uh, and in a fork in the branches uh, was the plant I'd been looking for. I knew instantly. And I asked him, how he found it. And he said that, well, we took ayahuasca last night and a woman came to me and said, this is the plant you're looking for. And I said, what was it about it? And he said, well, it was green. Well, you know, this is the greenest place on earth. <laughs> so, but it was a particular shade and that's what caught his eye and uh, was indeed Codenanthopsis dissimulata. So I've seen this happen. Um, Ayahuasca is associated with uh, clairvoyance, uh, with telepathic communication, um, a very profound experience. And certainly this has um, allowed people to adapt to a harsh environment and improve their survival. Um, so that's a long-winded explanation to your question. Uh, and, I, and I hung on every word of it. Thank you so much for that. And it's such a thrill. It must be, it certainly is for me. I, I know it is for the plant medicine community, frankly, for the, the spiritual community, but certainly that must go triple for you uh, to see uh, a revolution of consciousness and a revolution of plant medicine taking place throughout North America and other parts of the world. We're seeing, you know, FDA approved clinical trials here. We've got the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies or MAPS, um, you know, just exploding and getting a lot of, of financial backing from David Bronner, who of course helped to legalize hemp and like most philanthropists is moving his his money around to the next uh, to the next movement, which for him is regenerative agriculture and, of course, plant medicine. Um, how do you feel about all that is unfolding that we're we're seeing before our very eyes right now? Uh, well, it's great, but you know, it's all too slow for me. When I began this, uh, I had more hair and it wasn't great. So you know, it's been a long haul. Plus, it's a constant battle against the. <laughs> forces of darkness, which have been ascendant in our country uh, for some time. So um, it, it it's always a struggle. Indeed. And yet it's, we get up every day and we do our work and we warrior on. Um, and you're, you're just such a huge part of that. And I just have so much uh, faith and confidence while, of course, tying my camel down and making sure we just keep doing the work and, and press on. It's, it's so fantastic. Well, we might be moving around a little bit in this interview because there are so many different things that I want to ask you. So now we'll go from the Amazon um, and then let's go. Now, let's now talk about the hemp root. 
within the show, we talked so much about, of course, a grain, that nutrient-dense seed. We talk about all of the different uh, aspects of fiber from nanotechnology onto the most basic animal bedding, right? Um, and then, of course, cannabinoids, which do tend to take up all the air in the room these days. And, um, and we will get there. Uh, but let's talk about that hemp root, which, of course, has triterpenes uh, in that root ball that aren't available anywhere else in the plant and in fact are hard to find in the entire uh, plant kingdom. You are, of course, among a scholar of among many parts of the cannabis plant, the hemp root. You have an entire uh, presentation or at least a presentation where a good deal of it uh, discusses the historical and medicinal use of the hemp root ball. Can you talk to us about that for a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, back in the 90s, when I began studying this, I, I saw a lot of interesting references, probably mostly from the 70s, about cannabis roots. On uh, I had always filed these away. And uh, also, uh, historically, the older literature, particularly, uh, well, going back to the Greeks, uh, but additionally, the Renaissance herbalists frequently referred to the use of cannabis roots. But um, it was probably about eight years ago, I met Natasha Riz in uh, Vancouver, and she asked me about cannabis roots. And I said, oh, we're going to be friends. Well, it, it provided an opportunity to write a collaborative paper on it. And basically, we looked at the um, biochemical contents, which, as you mentioned, included uh, triterpenoids, and also a couple of alkaloids that don't appear anywhere else in the plant. The really interesting thing about it is some of the indications for the roots on inflammation and treating the burns are the same as for the tops. And yet there's this total uh, divergence of contents. What you got in the root isn't in the tops and vice versa. Um, so boy, I mean, this is a plant of infinite wisdom. Um, and then, uh, you know, word gets around, I guess. Um, I was with Dustin Sulak in Chile a few years ago, um, and we were on the street in Valparaiso, um, that city on the coast, and there was a guy selling uh, cannabis products on the street, and one of them was a tincture of hemp roots. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, really funny, uh, particularly since, um, you know, I'd published on it. Did you get any? Did you get any, your hands on any of it? Well, this was like five hours before we were due to fly out. So <laughs> no, um, I didn't need any additional scrutiny. Indeed, indeed. And uh, and so you say burns, inflammation, anything else to share? In Cancer treatment. So you know, it's entirely possible that combining the roots with material from the tops is going to create multiple branch points of synergy. Uh, and treating a complex problem like cancer. Oh my gosh, my mind was just blown, I thought to myself. Talk about the entourage effect. I mean, that's just a double whammy. The properties sure. of the the roof uh, roots along with the properties from the from the flowering tops. Oh my goodness. That is synergy of a shining example of synergy, I would imagine. I incredible. Um and and while we are talking about it, um and, and before I move on to a couple of other things, perhaps this is a good time right now to talk about uh, if we were to, to discuss cannabinoid science, we'd be here for, for 10 hours, if not 10 days. 
what's the most exciting thing uh, that is happening right now in cannabinoid science medicine, whether it's a legal aspect, whether it's a development aspect or, or some other, but what's the most exciting thing in your mind, uh, Dr. Russo, that's happening right now in the world in cannabinoid science? Sure. Well, to me, it'd be the ascendance of the so-called minor cannabinoids. Um, you know, I uh, was amazed um, how slow it was for people to get on to uh, the whole topic of cannabidiol, CBD. Now it's huge. Um, but I expect a similar uh, revolution with cannabigerol, CBG, and quite likely with uh, other cannabinoids. Um, it really has been disappointing to me that there's been so little selective breeding for these minor cannabinoids. Um, for better or worse, uh, the market is, is still really oriented towards high THC, high mercine varieties, and um, it just doesn't provide even a glimpse of what the plant is capable of doing, both experientially um, and therapeutically. Uh, so, you know, if person's interested in what we'll call recreational use of cannabis, uh, can be a lot better than what's commonly out there. We can create a better experience, a more varied experience, uh, if there were greater diversity uh, in the material. And even when we talk about our, our low THC varieties or what we might refer to as hemp, um, although I'm so aware, uh, Dr. Russo, that when you hear the word hemp, you are thinking industrial. And I, I totally understand that. So I will, I will use the word low THC varieties in this, in this conversation. So we're using a similar dictionary. Um, and of course, I, I, I also have Hempace International, my own, you know, legal consulting and expert witness firm. And I also am director of regulatory and legal affairs for an international dietary supplement company that uses these hemp or low THC varieties. And, and I'm thrilled. Uh, part of what it keeps me excited uh, about doing that work, um, which is very much mired in law and regulation and particularly in the Code of Federal Regulations for Dietary Supplements and Cosmetics, as you might imagine. Um, but we have really innovative uh, products with a line of CBG. And again, these none of these are isolates. It's not an isolate company or company that deals at all with isolates. Um, a CBC product, um, as well as a CBN product, which are getting more and more common, of course, the cannabinol uh products, but also uh, we have uh, another product with THCV, CBDV, and CBD called uh, Ultra Rev, um, and then a line of cosmetics as we start to see the skin benefiting research coming up, which has a one-to-one-to-one -one -one CBD, CBC, and CBG in this very natural and wonderful formulation. So just so exciting to be a part of, of watching, as you say, these ascending uh, Miners um, and what's what's being done with them, particularly when they're being done in CGMP facilities with a quality control program and and some of the top top mines. It's it's pretty it's pretty fabulous stuff. May I ask you, uh, as we and again, I, I'm talking more from this low THC variety, especially as I as I speak from almost a reg, from a regulatory perspective right now. We are seeing the rise of Delta Eight, uh, and it's one thing when we're looking at, a, at the medical or adult use cannabis markets. Um, 
But when we're looking at uh, the hemp markets and, and the hemp movement, which of course we, we have managed to uh, extract ourselves from the shackles of the Controlled Substances Act. We, the DEA, of course, which is addicted to prohibition. I have just never seen greater addicts in my life uh, than the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration um, and their addiction to prohibition, particularly with cannabis. Um, so, so we are coming off the heels of hysterical, really non-science-driven uh, social engineering. And it's really important for us to responsibly steward the reemergence of the valuable hemp industries here. And what we're seeing is this rise of Delta 8. Um, I'm certainly not telling you anything you don't know. I'll just frame it up for the listeners that Delta 8 tetrahydrocannabinol, and there are 30 isomers of tetrahydrocannabinol in the plant, and please correct me if I've misspoken there in, in a second. Uh, but Delta 8 tetrahydrocannabinol is really available in the, yes, it does naturally occur in the cannabis planet, very small potentially, I could say, maybe even infinitesimal amounts. Having said that, it has been discovered that CBD, of which there is a tremendous surplus due to a massive overproduction, um, can be converted to this Delta-8. Uh, and there's this argument saying, hey, it's not chemical synthesis. It's a passive process. Uh, we just interviewed Chris Udala, PhD of Proverde uh, Laboratories, who's, who's a, a personal hero of mine and a real first line of defense for the responsible stewardship of, of all of the, the various cannabis industries. And he says, yeah, Joy, have you put acid in your eye? Is, is that passive? <laughs> no, actually, it's not. So what we're seeing is is because uh, hemp has been liberated, thank goodness, every single part of it, it's extracts, it's cannabinoids, it's derivatives, compound salts, and isomers, and salts of isomers, um, we, we can work with the plant now. However, I'm not entirely sure that it was congressional intent uh, for us to be converting these derivatives and these compounds. And now we're seeing products that are have an intoxicating uh, component now, Clearly, Delta-8 is not as intoxicating as Delta-9, but given the, the differences in all of our endocannabinoid systems, cannabinoids affect us all differently. And there are lots of people who are feeling an intoxicating uh, to some extreme degrees with Delta-8. What, what are you thinking as you, as you watch this unfold? I, I would just love to know your thoughts, whatever they are. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, you know, these are isomers, Delta-8 and Delta-9. Um, actually, in the best labs using liquid chromatography, it's apparent that um, what we thought before isn't necessarily the case. There are plenty garden variety, even hemp chemovars of cannabis that have a generous amount of uh, Delta-8 in the natural plant before any heating or anything else. So it often is a mixture, but you know the, the points are right on top of each other. And um, so, you know, it's there. Uh, it is a natural compound. It's not just a byproduct of heating. Um, how much less psychoactive is it? Well, that hasn't been established. The studies really haven't been done. It's one of the things I'd like to do properly in a lab setting with human volunteers, double blind, uh, to see what the difference in, in potencies are. Now, the legal aspects. Um, no, Congress did not intend for people to be making uh, Delta-8 THC out of CBD. 
yes, uh, technically it's all illegal. Uh, as CBD is, um, uh, according to the DEA and the FDA, apart from Epidiolex, uh, pharmaceutical approved by the FDA, which is now descheduled, uh, only in America can you have a situation where uh, CBD in the prescription form is not scheduled and CBD in any other form is technically schedule one, forbidden, dangerous, addictive, with no recognized medical use. But that's the law. Um, there's a nasty piece of legislation that's been there since the early 80s uh, called the Analogs Act. And it basically says uh, if you have a molecule that's closely related to a Schedule One forbidden substance, that it is like, likewise uh, forbidden. Um, so on any level, Delta-8 um, is not, you know, heretofore, there has not been the enforcement, um, but all it'll take is one situation where a consumer complains uh, or there's some other kind of abuse um, and uh, potentially this is grist for the um, law enforcement mill, as it were. Um, so technically it's illegal. And in, indeed, when you say, you know, that how you would love to do trials and, and for you on, on potency and, and intoxication or, or psychoactive uh, potential, as it were, on humans, from a public harm perspective, I, I think we need to have some some research on humans before we start having them vape it all day as well, uh, particularly converted Delta-8. I think that's part of the concern that Chris Sudala has and, and, and that regulators and lawmakers and that stewards of the industry have are that uh, we don't have human studies. I don't think we even have rat studies, rodent studies uh, on on these new products. And, and so we do need those those things. And in fact, I you know advocacy again is always at the heart of what I do and uh, at the federal level and, and in multiple states. And there are uh, it's it's so difficult. It's it's a torn situation because we we understand that folks are, are looking for economic stability and trying to patch things together, particularly through COVID. And I know that there are many companies in hemp and, and in the hemp cannabinoid industry that Delta 8 is sort of keeping them alive right now. Um, and at the same time, there are states that are absolutely moving in and, and reaching out to uh, experts of various kind because they are banning Delta 8. It is becoming uh, an issue and a problem. And then, of course, we have these concerns with our cousins in medical and adult use cannabis, where you know, we were fighting the same fight for decades and and fighting against big pharma and, and fighting against sort of, you know, the petrochemical industry and the plastics and the paper. And and now over time, the the petrochemical industry is, is looking to hemp. They understand that it's it's a finite uh, resource that they have in fossil fuels and so on and so forth. And and while certainly big pharma is still very much um, a competitor with liberating the plant, no matter what legal status it's 
it's in, uh, FDA, of course, and, and sort of piggybacking on, on what you mentioned there. And, and what I would say is that the FDA, of course, says it is their position. And thank God it is a guidance position as opposed to a final agency action or final determination uh, that it is unlawful to market uh, CBD and hemp extract uh, as a dietary supplement or a food additive. And yet we, we watch ourselves do it all day, every day uh, as they purport to be working on a regulatory framework. We could have a whole show on that. Um, but, but in any event, um, we, we really are, are just basically uh, looking to, to get a, a regulatory framework and to be able to protect uh, the public as we, as we move forward. And so it's really difficult um, because I so feel for these companies and understand the revenue that they need to generate to move forward. But we, we really cannot be jeopardizing the whole industry uh, and public harm. And uh, indeed, synthetic forms um, are, are still controlled. And and so I think that those are the issues that we're that we're going to be rubbing out here with this with this delta eight. What do you think about delta nine THC acetate? Any thoughts on that one? Which is the other direction? Some say three hundred times more potent than delta nine. Uh, yeah, I really haven't seen uh, the literature attesting this uh, differences in psychoactivity. Yeah, I, my bias runs towards uh, the natural products and extracts. Uh, I believe in the synergy of ingredients, the entourage effect. I am much less interested in isolates, and I'm not interested in, at all in semi-synthetics and totally synthetics. Um, it's just a philosophical thing with me. Um, there's nothing that an isolate or particularly a synthetic is going to do that will equal uh, what a well-constructed uh, extract of uh, the plant will do therapeutically. Indeed. As I often, if I've got a terrible illness and I only have access to a cannabis isolate, sure, I will take that. But it's certainly not uh, the first choice on any stretch of the imagination. You mentioned uh, for credo science, of course, not just the medical applications, but industrial applications as well. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on there? Yeah, we're working on these things. And because we haven't published yet, I've got to be a little circumspect about it. But um, yeah, we have industrial applications. Uh, there are potential agricultural applications of hemp-based products uh, that we'd love to uh, get into the marketplace. Uh, additionally, uh, we have a series of nutritional products planned that would be value-added uh, as compared to available products currently. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are endless opportunities. It's all limited by, um, you know, everyone has limited bandwidth, but uh, it's not a personnel issue. It's always a funding issue. So it remains the case in 2021 that uh, there's inadequate backing for innovative companies, particularly on the research side. Indeed. And and Credo Science, you actually founded this. Now, you have been involved in so many things. I, we've only even 
touched the absolute surface here and we didn't even go in to your nonprofit work, which is, again, and I don't mean to overuse the word prolific. I just, I don't have a thesaurus near me and you, you're just synonymous with the darn word. Um, you're, you're cannabis expert panel, obviously, for the U.S. Pharmacopeia. Uh, you're on the board of advisors for the American Botanical Council. And just recently, um, and I didn't realize this until I was, because it is so recent, uh, until I was preparing for the show today, or, or recent in terms of um, my investigating uh, the particulars of Dr. Rousseau, uh, and that is you're the former Director of Research and Development for the International Cannabis and Cannabinoids Institute, ICCI. Uh, and, and that still is only scratching the surface, but is Credo Science the first sort of for-profit company that you yourself founded? Yes, absolutely. Wow, that's so exciting. I, I want the whole world to beat your door down, giving you money to pursue all of these ideas. <laughs> well, it hasn't happened so far. We have one seed investor who uh, we're very excited about, and we're hoping that uh, she will bring friends in. <laughs> I'm just thrilled to know about this because, boy, people ask, you know, they ask uh, and talk about us. Talk about a safe bet. Oh, my goodness. Credo science. This is just great to know. And then we didn't discuss yet Breeders Best, which uh -huh. is another company. And I got your tagline there, connecting independent cannabis breeders to world markets. Can you tell me about Breeders Best and, and your role in it? Sure. Well, uh, this is a company that's about 15 months old now, uh, uh, spearheaded by Dale Hunt. Uh, who has the distinction of being a patent attorney, but also has a PhD in plant science, a uh, brilliant guy. He is very dedicated to the idea that uh, the independent breeder that might have been off the grid for the last 30 years, if she or he has created something unusual uh, through cannabis breeding, that they should have the ability to uh, get some market protection for that, intellectual property protection, and uh, help them with marketing it. And they would retain the intellectual property throughout the process, and hopefully the company would uh, get some profit from it, from the sale of um, product, whether it be flour, extracts, or, or others. And this is very much in line with uh, our philosophy, which is we want to make cannabis safer and better. Uh, and again, that can extend to so-called adult use uh, and medical use, uh, industrial applications, whatever it is. Uh, but the idea being that uh, we want to be sort of uh, distinct from the more common market approach. And just use the example in, in Canada. There are over 260 licensed producers of cannabis in Canada. A few are paying lip service to research, mainly in the form of observational studies. So they'll give their product to a series of patients and ask how effective it is and monitor side effects. And that really doesn't cut it in the scientific community, particularly amongst physicians. It's nothing that's going to lead to new prescription medicines, you know, we realize that there's always going to be this other approach, supplement approach, also uh, flour itself. I think everyone makes a mistake when they think that one aspect of the market can eliminate the others. It has never happened. It never will happen. 
So, you know, I believe in a peaceful coexistence there. Um, and we see the advantages of e each of the three aspects of the market. But uh, basically with Breeders Best, we're seeking out, uh, I have a wish list of certain chemovar profiles uh, that we'd like to find, and we're doing pretty well with that. But, you know, it's a, an outlet for somebody who has something that's really unique to get protection, recognition, and even, dare I say the dirty word, income uh, from <laughs> their creation. And and exactly what we want them to be able to do. People don't dedicate their lives to uh, creating and, and maintaining genetics in, in a breeding program of whatever degree that breeding program is, um, only to have someone take it. It's just, uh, it, it's an interesting sort of philosophical conundrum um, and yet here we are. And uh, we, we definitely so appreciate. I did not realize because as you're, I'm sure, well aware, there are other organizations that have, have come into either purporting to or actually uh, helping folks sort of map out their genetics so or preserve it. So there is some type of claim that can be made uh, to it, particularly when there is federal legalization. Of course, with hemp, we are we now have the Plant Variety Protection Act is available to us and, and all of those things and seed certifying agencies, global seed certifying agencies such as AOSCA uh, and the Association of Official Seed Certifying Agencies and the OECD, the Organization for Economic Community Development, have had schemes for some years now, since around 2015-ish, uh, for pedigreed uh, seeds and certification of, of hemp seeds. And, and when that happens for other forms of, of cannabis seeds that exceed 0.3% Delta 9, um, you know, those protections, I imagine, will be available. But it's uh, it, it'll be because of databases and professional organizations uh, like Breeders Best that folks who, who have engaged in that, I think, will, will be in a better position, obviously, to take advantage of those protections of the genetics they've created. Is there anything before we uh, part ways here, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you or a particular message that you want to make sure you leave the listeners with? I uh, will add one other thing that we're doing uh, with Credo, and that is this isn't confined uh, to the cannabis plant. We're also uh, trying to leverage the endocannabinoid system uh, we're currently working on two diagnostics related to disorders related, we believe, to the endocannabinoid system. One, uh, we've just completed a proof of concept, uh, which we hope to uh, publish very soon. Uh, this happens to be for a rare condition, but uh, one where um, how it works hasn't been understood heretofore. The other one is for a very common condition. Uh, this is a sort of leap of faith. If we can prove that it's related to the endocannabinoid system through the mechanism that we're investigating, uh, it will mean very big things uh, for an understanding of the pathophysiology, how this disorder works, and also uh, direct us towards much, much better treatment. Um, so, um, yeah, it's sort of, uh, we've got a broad mandate. Uh, again, we're just looking for the support we need to complete the projects. And just advance medicine uh, exponentially like you do so, so very well. 
Uh, Dr. Rousseau, I, I just can't tell you what a thrill it is to be able to have you on Hemp Barons. Um, it's thrill. It's a thrill just to be able to live in, in basically the same county as you as well. Uh, and I cannot wait until we gather again. You know, I I picture the the whole rest of the cannabis community just being totally jealous jealous of us here in Western Washington, uh, because when it is not a global pandemic, uh, we're a very active very loving and supportive community here. Um, and we get to have uh, Ethan Russo keynote our events and do PowerPoints for us at the at the local theater. And it's just such a wonderful thrill. Uh, the amount of, of time uh, and generosity uh, of just your, your message, your knowledge that you share, it is, the words actually just escaped me. The depth of gratitude um, from my, my hemp and heart and, and for all of us is so deep. Uh, what you share with us and what you bring to the world. Um, and listeners, we will absolutely have all of the links, including uh, links to Dr. Russo's articles at ethanrusso.org, but all of those links will be up at Pod Connects. Uh, Dr. Russo, again, thank you for everything. I cannot wait to commune with you again in person. And I'm wishing you just good health, prosperity, and fabulous investors until we talk again. Thanks, Joy, for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey, everyone. It's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.